0: Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on air, a stroke nurse and a dietitian will discuss how to reduce your risk of a stroke.
1: So, opting for lean cuts of meat, uh, so that's like chicken, poultry, and fish is an excellent source. It has that nice, lovely, heart healthy, brain healthy fat.
0: Then, a hand specialist will give us a rundown of common wrist injuries and how they are repaired.
2: Depending on, you know, how you feel, most people. They know something's wrong and and the severity of it and figure out where best to go and and how severe you really feel it is.
0: And we'll learn about the diagnosis and treatment of asthma, a disease that can range from mild to severe.
3: To diagnose asthma, it's a combination of uh, taking a good physical exam and then we can get some tests.
0: All that, a checkup from the neck up and a visit from our healing muse coming up right after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink air, your chance to explore health, medicine, and science with Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. On this week's show, an orthopedic surgeon specializing in hand injuries will talk about how he repairs the most common wrist injuries. Then we'll learn about the diagnosis and treatment of asthma. But first, a dietitian and a nurse have teamed up to talk about ways to reduce stroke risk. A stroke happens when normal blood flow to the brain is blocked either by a clot or by a vessel bursting and bleeding into the brain. This happens to some 800,000 people in the United States each year. Some of them will die from the stroke and up to 50% of them will survive but with a lifelong disability. Two guests are here to tell us more about strokes. They are Michelle Vallalunga, a nurse and data coordinator for Upstate's Comprehensive Stroke Program, and Rebecca Hauserman, Lead dietitian for Morrison Healthcare at Upstate University Hospital. Thank you both for being here. Thank Appreciate you. it. Now, some people may have heard about um, brain attacks, so I want to make clear that that's another name for stroke. Same same thing, right? Right. So let's start by. Um, why don't you tell us, Michelle, what puts a person at risk for stroke?
4: Okay. Well, the risk factors for stroke um, involve ones that um, can be changed um, or modified, and ones like heredity or family history or age. Um, In general, the older you get, um, the more at risk you are for having a stroke. But we all know time marches on. There's really not much that you can do about your age. So certainly what you wanna do is focus on the things that you can modify or the things that you can seek treatment for. Um, Primarily, um, the ones that we focus on, the most important one is high blood pressure. Um, and many of the risk factors for stroke are very similar or the same as heart disease. Um, so high blood pressure is the number one thing that we talk about in our um, talking to the community. We say that control of high blood pressure gives you the biggest bang for your buck in terms of lowering your stroke risk. So if you consistently keep your blood pressure um, within the usually acceptable range, which is, you know, certainly lower, like 140 over 90 is the common standard for high blood pressure. Um but, kind of
0: the lower the better. Right.
4: And you want to be definitely in the one twenty over eighty range or lower, and that's certainly dependent on your your physician and their recommendations. But you definitely want to know your numbers and know where you are. And if you are prescribed medication for high blood pressure to definitely take those and be monitored by your doctor.
0: So you mentioned the same, like the risk factors are similar for heart disease, so smoking, alcohol, drug use, those things are... Contributors?
4: Yes, anything, um, smoking, um, use of alcohol or drugs, um, uh, diet. Or
0: excessive, um, we should say. Excessive right, excessive, or,
4: yes, excessive alcohol or drugs, um, um, lack of physical activity, and uh, a non heart healthy diet, so to speak. yeah. So
0: tell me, how does diabetes um, affect your stroke risk? Because a lot of, I mean, that's rampant. There's a lot of people with diabetes.
4: Right. Diabetes, um, by virtue of um, the, the you know, higher amount of, of sugar um, and, and insulin, you know, the body in diabetes is, is resistant to insulin. Um, and it really places a, a large amount of continual stress on your blood vessels. So that's the primary link is that um, they're not in a normal, normal state. And, and diabetes is fluctuating. And it, for most folks, it's you know a little difficult to control. So um, you want to make sure that you keep the stress on the blood vessels as, as least as possible. Okay. And then I've
0: also heard um, atrial fibrillation um, being something that can cause or lead to a stroke. What, what is that?
4: Right. Atrial fibrillation is a um, heart condition that basically is where the heart, the electrical impulses of the heart are not um, beating in a regular pattern. Um, the impulses are um, getting uh, cross, crossed and the signals um, to, to produce like a normal beat and pump that blood out from the ventricles to the rest of the body is not nice and steady in the case atrial fibrillation. Um, The blood that's going through the heart uh, tends to pool in the top of the heart chambers instead of going nicely through to the bottom and then pumped out to the body. Um, And that pooling has a tendency to produce clots. And those clots can then be sent out with the blood. And in the case of a stroke, it's where the clot then goes to the brain. Okay.
0: All right. So If your doctor has diagnosed you with um, atrial fibrillation or diabetes or any of these things or expressed concern about your lack of physical activity, um, your risk for stroke is higher Mm -hmm. than average. Definitely. Yeah, definitely. Well, let's talk about um, some of the things that a person can do um, because some strokes are preventable, right?
4: Yes, and really um, close to about 80% of all strokes are preventable. And the general message for folks is to know your, you know, just like with the uh, heart folks, know your numbers, know where you stand, um, kind of really have an open conversation with your doctor about what are your own personal risk factors. Um, As I mentioned, if you have a problem with high blood pressure, make sure that you're doing what you can to get that under control. Um, If you need to increase your activity um, then maybe you know work with him or her to get a you know exercise plan or some kind of activity plan going Um, we always tell folks any amount of exercise is good Um, you can start small don't try to conquer the world in terms of what you want to try to do um, because then you'll be less likely to be successful and if you um maybe are overweight or, you know, need some help in the dietary area, try to work with your physician, maybe get a nutrition consult, um, and to work with some, you know, diets that they may recommend to try to, you know, reduce weight and therefore reduce your stroke risk.
0: Well, we when you mentioned diet, we definitely want to talk to Rebecca here about um, diet. But before, before that, let me ask you, uh, is it true that the more risk factors you have, the greater your risk like are they cumulative
4: yes yes they are and i i think that definitely is something people need to be aware of um because you know you want to kind of work we always try to tell folks you know balance out those risk factors try to do a little bit of you know help to control each one
0: this is Upstate's HealthLink on air with Stroke Nurse Michelle Vallalunga and Dietitian Rebecca Hauserman. Uh, we're discussing stroke prevention, and I want to turn to Rebecca now to um, talk about the diet. When we talk about the importance of diet um, and looking for like a heart healthy diet to help pre- reduce our stroke risk, what are we specifically talking about?
1: All right, so heart healthy is also brain healthy. And there are three main things that we're watching with diet. Um, The first thing is monitoring your sodium intake. Um, Sodium being salt. Salt, yes. Yeah. So it's more than just the salt shaker. First, putting away that salt shaker will help reduce your sodium intake. Um, uh, Salt is an acquired taste. So if you start reducing your, your salt intake with the salt shaker, you'll. Um, your taste buds will get used to it. And you can
0: use other things instead of salt.
1: Absolutely. Um, So using herbs and spices, looking for options that do not include salt with it. So picking uh, garlic powder over garlic salt or Mm. uh, a lot of other spices will give you that nice great flavor without all that sodium in there too. Processed foods are also a huge contributor of sodium in the American diet especially um, breads and crackers are one of the highest, uh, sodium influencers in the diet, which many people don't think about, uh- The reason why is because they put a lot of sodium to keep it shelf stable. So everything that's in the middle of the store is usually high in sodium in order for it to stay on the shelf. So when grocery shopping, sticking to the perimeter of the store and then choosing fresh and frozen options, looking for things without um, sauces or gravies. And if you do opt for canned uh, vegetables, giving it a rinse first, and that can help reduce its sodium content. Just rinsing it in a colander or something? Yep, putting it right in the colander, dropping it, and then giving it a good little swish there. We'll okay. So, the so reducing the salt. Yeah. Um, then the next thing is, um, reducing fat, cutting the fat. Uh, so fat, especially saturated fat, saturated fat means that you can see it at room temperature. So butter, or when you have, you know, your steak with that big old fat mm-hmm. hunk on it, um, that's saturated <laughs> fat. Um, marbling and steak is also considered to be saturated fat. Um, so opting for lean cuts of meat. Uh, so that's like chicken, poultry, and fish is an excellent source. Um, we think of fish as being fatty, but it has that nice, lovely, heart-healthy, brain-healthy fat. So that's a great option for you as well.
0: And there's different textures of fish. I, and, you, and, you know, if you're looking for something meatier, there right. are f- Absolutely. cuts that are...
1: Yes, you, you still get that nice protein feel mm-hmm. in your mouth. Okay. Um, and staying away from trans fats. Um, trans fats greatly increase your risk for heart and stroke. Um, and trans fats and would
0: be things like that are in potato chips. Yep,
1: yeah, uh, baked goods or frostings. Um, it's mm-hmm. something that someone's played with, uh, okay. and it's not quite natural anymore. Okay. All right. All right. So low salt, low fat. And the last thing is um, carbohydrates in moderation. So this applies to people that don't have diabetes. We tend to associate carbohydrates and diabetes, but it um, fits everyone. More recent research is showing that um, high sugar, high carbohydrate intake uh, has just as much, if not more so, of an effect than saturated fat on the diet. And the reason is you have all that extra sugar um, or extra carbohydrates, which your body can't use, so it converts it to sugar in the body, which then converts it to fat. Okay. So if you... Um, If you're going too high with that, then you have increased triglyceride levels in your body and increased cholesterol levels in the body, which increases your stroke risk. So opting for whole grain options, looking for things that are high in fiber, because that can also help um, reduce your cholesterol levels. Um, And then watching the processed carbohydrates. So like the white bread, the white pasta and rice, opting for the whole grains there. When it comes to sweets, I mean, a life without dessert is not a life worth living. So just making sure you're having sweets in moderation. Um, so having a little bit of dark chocolate here and there, maybe a slice of cake, a small slice of cake. Look for the smaller slices of cake when you're going for and it. And not every day. And not every day. dessert, <laughs> Not huge desserts every day. And then um, cutting out soda. There's really no benefit to soda. So taking that out diet or otherwise um diet is okay um you don't want to go too high with that either but um regular soda just knock it out okay all right
0: well good advice it sounds simpler than it may may it can be 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 done they all
1: go together when you think about it so all
0: right well we never want to do an interview about stroke without going over the signs and symptoms Mm -hmm. um so michelle um the acronym that we've become accustomed to is fast But can you talk me through um, how that's changing now?
4: Sure. Um, FAST, um, as hopefully a lot of people know, um, stands for F is for facial droop or facial weakness. Um, A is for arm weakness. S is for the slurred speech or speech changes. Um, Speech can also be if the person um, knows what they want to say but just can't quite get the words out. Um, as well as the slurring or start sounding garbled. Um, and the T, of course, stands for time. Uh, we want to get that person to call 911 or the person that's with them um, and get to the hospital as quickly as possible. But we're adding a, um, a couple. Um, it's becoming you know more popular to talk about two other uh, symptoms of stroke, and that is uh, B. So we talk about B fast. so BE. So B is for balance issues. So if the person is walking and and they have a very wobbly gait. Um, They just feel very off balance and the E stands for eye issues or eye difficulty. Um, that could be um, uh, blocking of the visual field, like you all of a sudden can't see in half of your visual field, um, blurred vision that won't go away, or the person suddenly starts to look in only one direction. Um, those are things that where you, if you see any of those things, you definitely wanna call 911 and get the person to the hospital because those can all be signs of uh, uh, stroke.
0: Now are these, these are signs that you might see in another person,
4: mm-hmm.
0: but if would you be able to recognize these in yourself?
4: Yeah, I think we've had, some, we've had cases where folks know, they just definitely feel that something is not right. Um, the idea with stroke most of the time is the changes that you see are sudden. So we always tell folks, they're like, how will I know? How will I know to call? Um, most of the cases we read, they do know because all of a sudden they're fine one minute and then all of a sudden they're experiencing these symptoms. So um, then it's time to call. Good yeah. to know. This mm-hmm. has been Upstate's Health Link on Air
0: with stroke nurse Michelle Vallalonga and dietitian Rebecca Hauserman discussing stroke prevention. Up, asthma on Upstate's HealthLink on air. From Upstate Medical University, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Today, we have with us an expert in the treatment and management of asthma, a disease that can range from mild to severe and affect both children and adults. Dr. Ahmed Shaukat is an assistant professor of pulmonary disease and critical care medicine at Upstate Medical University. Welcome, Dr. Shaukat.
3: Thank you for having me.
0: So, what is asthma?
3: So, asthma is a condition that affects the lungs. More specifically, it affects the airways in the lungs. Asthmatic people usually have sensitive airways to certain exposures. When they're exposed to these, their airways become inflamed, they become narrow and swollen, and that leads to asthma attacks.
0: Okay, so is this something that develops in childhood or does it develop later in life? Does it affect all ages?
3: It does affect all ages. It's more common to develop in childhood, but adults can also develop asthma later on in life.
0: So some of the symptoms that a person might feel if they've got asthma. The
3: main symptoms are usually difficulty breathing. Um, Other symptoms include wheezing, and that's a whistling sound with breathing, as well as a cough. Um, It's usually classically described as breathing through a straw. And that's what patients usually tell you um, when they come to the clinic.
0: Like it's hard to get a breath in? Exactly.
3: It's hard to get a breath in and it's hard to exhale to get the breath out. Huh.
0: Okay. All right. So um, what do you do when you see a patient for the first time who has these symptoms? Um, Where do you go from
3: there? What do you do for them? So the main thing um, to diagnose asthma, it's a combination of a very good history taking a good physical exam, and then we can get some tests. Uh, The main tests we get are breathing tests. Sometimes we would send for blood tests. Um, So if somebody tells me that they get short of breath around certain things, for instance, pets, um, that would make me very suspicious that he may have asthma. Um, Some of the tests we use, the breathing tests, are um, we ask the patient to breathe into a tube, and we measure the amount of air they exhale in asthmatic patients, before because of the narrowing of the airways, um, they have some obstruction and they don't exhale as much air as you would in a normal patient.
0: Okay. And you mentioned there's blood tests as well, or there might be?
3: There are blood tests, and that's usually to subtype the asthma. We can also send blood tests to check for allergens. Uh, these are basically things that patients are, are sensitive to that may trigger asthma attacks.
0: So um, is asthma... Uh, Connected to allergies?
3: It is, absolutely. So asthma is an allergic disease. So they run hand in hand with other allergic diseases, for instance, eczema, which is a skin allergic condition, as well as uh, nasal allergies or hay fever.
0: All right. Well, what do we know yet? What causes asthma?
3: We're not quite sure what causes asthma. Um, We do know from research we have that. Um, certain conditions can predispose you to developing asthma. For instance, if you have a family member who has asthma, you're about three or four times more likely to develop asthma.
0: So it runs in
3: families. Absolutely. So there's a genetic component there. Uh, We also know that um, children exposed to certain viral or bacterial infections can develop asthma later on in life. Interestingly, um, we have noticed or recognized that uh, pregnant women who smoke are more likely to have babies um, with asthma. Huh.
0: Okay, Okay, but we don't know exactly why that is. We just notice the association.
3: Exactly. So, so it's most likely a combination of both the genes as well as exposures in the environment.
0: Okay. Well, how common is it? I, he- I hear about asthma a lot, but how many people actually have it?
3: So asthma is actually um, increasing steadily. Based on the most recent data from CDC, In the last decade, decade, asthma has been going up slowly. Um, About 26 million people in the United States have asthma. That's about 1 in 12 adults. We also know that's more common in certain ethnicities, ethnicities, for instance, African-Americans and Puerto Ricans.
0: So um, if it's increasing, does it have anything to do with our environment or pollution? Or are are there thoughts about
3: why it's increasing. Yeah, that's that's a great question. So we have noticed from uh, medical research that asthma is increasing more in developed countries. We also know that children who live in or near farms are more likely are less likely to develop asthma. So that has led to what we call the hygiene hypothesis. So this theory postulates that as we become more more westernized, we place more emphasis on hygiene, sanitation, so our children are not exposed to bacterial and viral infections like they would have before. Um, this, in turn, leads to a, di- a change in the development of their immune system. So they become more likely to develop asthma. So this is one of the hi- hi- hypothesis to explain the increased asthma in developed countries.
0: Interesting. Um, this is Upstate's Health Link on air with Dr. Ahmed Shawkat, a doctor of pulmonary disease and critical care medicine at Upstate and we're discussing asthma. So back to the doctor's office, when you have a patient who comes in with these symptoms and you do these, the breathing tests and the blood tests perhaps, um, and you come up with a diagnosis of, of asthma, what, what then, once a person's told they have asthma, um, what does their life look like?
3: So asthma unfortunately does not have a cure, but we can definitely treat it and we can manage the symptoms. Um, So when we diagnose somebody with asthma, um, first of all, some asthmatic patients have mild asthma, so we may not even treat them. Um, We may just give them what we call a quick relief medication. So there's two categories of medications we treat asthma with. A quick relief medication is a medication you take only when you have symptoms, and it usually works within minutes. Um, The other medication is called the long-term controller medication.
0: So the quick one, is that the breather, the inhaler? Correct. Yes.
3: So it's mainly an inhaler um, that you take a puff when you get these symptoms of asthma, uh, which is the shortness of breath or the wheezing. Um, The long-term control medications are medications, like the name implies, are used long-term, and they prevent asthma worsening and asthma exacerbations. Um, they usually decrease the inflammation in the lungs. So is it a pill that you take every day? or it's the long- term is typically inhalers? Oh they are. um okay. there are pills as well, um, but usually the first line are inhalers. Um they have low dose steroids in them for the most part. So if you're taking these
0: um, long-term medications um and you come to uh, spring when everything starts blooming, are you liable to see sort of a reaction to um, the pollen and such?
3: Yeah, absolutely. So there are certain things that um, can trigger asthma attacks, and we call them triggers. Um, pollen spring um, in spring can trigger asthma attacks. We usually ask the patient to increase their medication sometimes before allergy season. Um, some other common ones are dust mite. Um, these are tiny bugs that are in in all houses mostly in carpets and mattresses and these can sensitize the airways in asthmatic patients leading to asthma exacerbations another big one is pets so cats and dogs we know release dander which is dead skin uh, which can also trigger asthma attacks
0: so it sounds to me like you kind of need to know what you're allergic to too if, if you get diagnosed with asthma um, and you don't know whether you have allergies, do you also need allergy
3: testing or? Um, For the most part, we can identify these triggers by asking the right questions. So taking a very good history and asking, usually you know, I mean, if you are around cats or dogs, your asthma symptoms would flare up. Sometimes we would send for blood tests to check for allergies, as well as skin tests, but usually it's just asking the right questions. You can figure it out
0: based on, okay, all right. So, there's times, though, that uh, asthma is uncontrolled. Some people have, is it just a more complex or more severe case? Or
3: Yes, um, so asthma can be uncontrolled despite taking the medication. Actually, the most common reason for asthma, uncontrolled asthma, is you don't know how to take your inhaler. So a really? lot of patients actually don't know, and based on one study, about 80% of patients did not know how to use their inhaler. 80%? Yes. Do, do doctors not show them how to use the inhaler? or That, does... that is probably part of the problem. Really? Um, so taking five minutes of your time to demonstrate how an inhaler is used can make a big difference. Now, other reasons for uncontrolled asthma include coexisting medical conditions, for instance, heartburn, severe acid reflux or nasal allergies, all these can contribute to uncontrolled asthma.
0: So if you have other, other medical problems, it might make it, exacerbate it, make it, it worse. It might
3: exacerbate it and might make it more difficult to control until these coexisting medical conditions are also controlled.
0: Okay, so that becomes a puzzle for the physician to control all of this. Yes, absolutely. So um, talk to me if you will about recent advances,
3: um, if there have been in treatment for asthma. Absolutely. So as our understanding of asthma increases, we recognize that asthma is a very heterogeneous disease. So basically, it's not one size fits all. There are different subtypes of asthma. So our treatments now are targeted to these different subtypes. Um, more recently, in the last um, couple of years, there have been a couple of new medications um, that have been FDA approved. Um, these are mostly in the form of injections that are taken once a month. These medications target specific pathways of asthma in these patients, and they can decrease and prevent asthma exacerbations.
0: So you mentioned the subtypes again. Are, are there what, what types of subtypes are there?
3: So we know, for instance, there's a subtype that develops in childhood, and that's usually allergic asthma. We also understand that you can develop asthma in adulthood later, and the elderly uh, can develop asthma as well. Mm. And um, there's subtypes aso- associated with obesity, for instance. So there's different subtypes and therefore our treatments should be targeted to these different subtypes.
0: And there's so many asthma medications on the market. Are some of them better for some types of asthma than others?
3: Most of the medications out there are similar. They have the same, um, same components, which is mostly inhaled steroids. As well as some medications to dilate the airways. Um, but different companies come up with different medications. There may be small differences, um, but most of them are similar. Um, now, the newer medications, the injections, um, these are more targeted to very uh, what we call eosinophilic asthma, which is more of an allergic asthma component.
0: Okay, but the majority of them work to dilate the airways, to keep the airways open
3: dilate the airways, and decrease the inflammation in the airways.
0: Interesting, interesting. Um, Well, do you have any other advice for someone who thinks that they've got got these symptoms? Do they need to go to a specialist,
3: or do they need to go to a primary care doctor first? Well, it really depends on how severe the asthma. Usually, primary care doctors can take care of mild asthma. If it's uncontrolled, then a referral to a specialist is warranted. And we can take it from there and take certain blood tests and see if they qualify for these more advanced therapies.
0: Very good. Well, thank you for the information. Appreciate you being here. Thank you very much. This for has me. been Upstate's Health Link on Air with Dr. Ahmed Shokhat, a doctor of pulmonary disease and critical care medicine at Upstate.
5: psychologist Dr. Rich O'Neill with this week's Checkup from the Neck Up. Goodbye and hello. Well folks, sometimes when I sit down to write my Checkup from the Neck Up, or rather when I sit-stand, 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 because as you know, new research shows sitting is the new smoking in terms of too much sitting being bad for our health. Anyway, when I start writing, sometimes I'm just bubbling over with ideas for my next checkup from the neck up, and sometimes the well is pretty dry. Today, a dry well. And when this happens, I prime the pump by asking myself, what one thing would you tell people if this were your very last checkup from the neck up? So I did that, and now I have a real dilemma, because what came to mind is something very emotional and very personal. And if I share it, I'll be vulnerable. And you know there's this stigma attached to being emotional in public, let alone on the radio, especially for men. But then there's this other part of me asking isn't one of your major checkup from the neck up goals to reduce the stigma on psychology, psychologists, our clients, and all things emotional? Well, Rich, you would have to bring that up. (laughs) And isn't one of the best ways to reduce stigma to avoid getting on an intellectual high horse and, and instead share real human feelings with other people who probably have similar feelings? No doubt. Well, Rich, you would have to bring that up. And isn't it possible that at least some listeners would recognize how you feel and be accepting and understanding? Okay, 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 Rich, you win. So here goes. What came to mind is the deep sadness and grief I feel about the impending death of a very, very dear colleague of mine who has become much more than a colleague, a very close friend over almost 30 years. Sadness so deep that sometimes I unexpectedly find myself close to tears at various moments during the day. And what comes to mind is what I'm learning about saying goodbye as she slowly gets worse. I'm learning from her that it's possible to have great, great courage and determination in approaching death. And I'm learning that a very loving, while also very sad way to say goodbye, is by showing up, by being present, and listening closely to her, and sharing my feelings with her, as she is ever so slowly dying, saying hello. And I'm learning again that showing up and listening closely to how others feel and then if they're interested showing how we feel is perhaps the best we can do as we live. And I'm learning that the world would probably be a better place if we made it more okay to tell each other things like someone I love is dying And I feel very sad about that. I find myself close to tears when I think about her. And that well of sadness is deep, but also oddly filled with joy and love. I'm Rich O'Neill. Thanks for tuning in.
0: up next the most common wrist injuries you're listening to upstates healthlink on air From Upstate Medical University, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink On air. My guest today is a hand specialist from Upstate's Department of Orthopedics, Dr. Brian Harley. He's here to talk about wrist injuries. Thanks for being here. Thank you. Now, um, Upstate Orthopedics has this walk-in hand and upper extremity clinic um, weekdays. What sorts of patients are you seeing in this walk-in clinic?
2: The typical patient is somebody who's had some sort of event where they've either fallen or They've injured their hand or their wrist in the course of a day or a day before, and they they notice that their wrist is sore or painful or their hand is really hurting, and so they want to get it looked at. And so we provide that ability for them, basically to walk in uh, and get it evaluated. Typically, they're a you know an ambulatory patient, so they're not seriously injured or something they need an ambulance for, but it was a traumatic enough event where it's it's really hurting, and they wanna they want to know what's going on.
0: And they can come there and get the assessment, the X-ray, or the whatever imaging is needed. Correct. And, and yeah. a hand specialist to look at them. So.
2: Sure thing. A clinical evaluation, X-ray, whatever needs to be done.
0: So, um, is there a season for wrist injuries?
2: Not, not really. I, I think the statistics would be that probably uh, ten to fifteen percent of people will suffer a wrist fracture in their life. So it's a really common thing. I have four kids. One of them's broken his wrist. Um, mm-hmm. So you know, there's there's definitely some peaks. I think the, the first snowfall or that first freezing rain in November, we usually see a, a parade to the clinic or the emergency room from some people falling and breaking wrists. And then when the when the winter finally recedes and the bicycles and the skateboards and the rollerblades come out, then we see people falling off of those things and, and breaking and spraining wrists. But uh, pretty much on any given day, we use our wrists and our hands and we're busy and falling and and uh, it's a pretty uniform injury throughout the year.
0: So a wrist fracture, you've mentioned falling multiple times. Is that really the only way that a wrist would be fractured is if you fall and you're bracing yourself?
2: Certainly the most common. Most common? Okay. Yeah. And and for elderly people, just a fall at home off the edge of a carpet or stumbling coming out of the bathroom and with some weaker bone, that's a really common thing that we see for older people. And then for the younger groups, well, obviously they're the ones that are out being weekend warriors and... And, uh, and being active and doing things higher energy, so falling off bikes or coming down off ladders or, you know, falling at work or car accidents, motorcycle accidents. That's where we see some of the higher energy stuff. But there's a whole mixture of ways to do it, but certainly falls represent a the comment. majority.
0: Okay. So what what is your recommendation for someone before they get to the either the hospital or to the doctor's office? What should they do in the interim?
2: I think it really depends on the severity. I mean, again, as we talked about, somebody that falls off a ladder, I mean, they're more likely to you know, really be injured and you know, consider an ambulance or something like that. For the average person that has a fall, their wrist hurts, it's not obviously deformed or, or something doesn't seem terribly wrong, then the basic thing for most of these is you go in, you wrap it up with some ice and you, you sort of splint it or self-splint it as best as possible and try and figure out how intact you really are. And then depending on, you know, how you feel. Most people, they know something's wrong and, and the severity of it. So for the average person, if it's not too severe and they're concerned, it could be something, some ice, you know, most people have an ACE bandage or some sort of splinting material at home. And, and then you splint it up and then you figure out where best to go, depending on the time of day and, and, and how severe you really feel it
0: is. And if you um, you know sleep on it so to speak, you go to bed, you wake up in the morning and it's worse than bef- the day before, is that a signal?
2: Sure. Okay. If, as this, if the swelling and bruising increases, then the likelihood that you need to get an X-ray more at least have it seen and assessed uh, by somebody who knows what they're doing is is probably more significant. If a ice it, sign the next morning it's a little bit bad, and you're moving, then that's usually of a pretty good sign that you mm-hmm. tweaked it a little bit but it's no more than one of those daily occurrences. Where where you twist something and things are getting better quick.
0: So when a patient comes in and they have got pain and maybe they've got swelling in the wrist area, how do you as the physician go about determining if it's broken or dislocated or sprained? Um, what's the assessment like? What do you do?
2: First thing, obviously, is you get you get a history from the patient, and uh, your suspicion for more severe injuries depends entirely on you know what what the patient tells you how it happened. I mean, somebody that was up cleaning out the gutters and comes you know, eight feet down off of a ladder, you're, you know, the energy suggests that there could certainly be more significant injury. If, if somebody suggests that a door slammed on their hand hard in the UK, it's a little lower energy, little, you know, they didn't come down with their body weight. So the history provides a, a, a degree of suspicion as to how much you think might be going on. Um, Physical exam, clearly, I mean, you see somebody that's bruised and swollen or their wrist looks crooked or deformed, then, you know, it's usually pretty intuitive that there's something more severe going on. Some people, it's not too bad, but they're very tender in one location. So if somebody's specifically tender at the bone, right at the wrist, then you're thinking, okay, they might have just had a little buckle or a little crack in the bone. And then ultimately to tell fractures, the x-ray is your Um, is your ultimate determination. So in the office, we see patient, we get the history, we examine them, and then we typically are getting x-rays in most of those instances. And then you have a pretty good sense for, is something broken or is something dislocated and out of joint? In between then is if you've got that pain and and things are sore and and tender, but the x-rays look normal, then that sort of falls into that sprain where you've probably stretched the ligaments, which hold all those bones together, and you've probably stretched them to the point where they got went a little too far, and that's why you're bruised and swollen, because those ligaments stretched and partly tore, and that's really what a sprain is. So just
0: because something really hurts and really looks bad, looks swollen, deformed and all, doesn't necessarily mean that it's actually broken. Correct.
2: Okay. Sometimes you'll see people and uh, it's it's a bad sprain and some of the ligaments have started to tear, but it's still all in joint and the bones are still structurally okay.
0: Well, I was gonna ask if we can go over um, the differences between what what a sprain, a fracture and a dislocation. The sprain is like stretched ligaments or tendons? Sure. Okay.
2: A fracture is pretty straightforward. A bone is a solid piece and it's designed to be one unit and it doesn't move, It's so it's very rigid, like a piece of lumber that holds your your the, the floor up in your house. And when it breaks, now it's not doing its job, so your skeleton is now uh, broken. Um, so that's pretty straightforward. A dislocation, then, is when a joint, which normally moves, now has gone too far. So it now pops out of joint. And the ligaments hold it in joint. So the sprain is really sort of halfway to a dislocation. Mm. Okay, so the joint moved. It moved a little further than it was supposed to. And so all those ligaments that hold the bones together got stretched and partly torn, but the joint didn't pop out completely. So if it goes that far where now the sprain is so bad that all the ligaments are torn, then the bone can pop out a joint and that's really what a dislocation is. Thankfully, dislocations about the wrist aren't very common. It takes a lot of energy. You're coming off a motorcycle at 45 miles an hour or bucked off a horse or something like that in order to dislocate your wrist. But sprains are really common because when you fall, your wrist bends back too far. Some of those ligaments that hold your wrist bones together stretch, partly tear. You can get some bruising and swelling, but your wrist is still reasonably well lined up.
0: This is Upstate's HealthLink on air. I'm your host Amber Smith, talking with Dr. Brian Harley, an orthopedic surgeon who is uh, chief of pediatric orthopedics hand division at Upstate. Um, so, between sprain, fracture, and dislocation, which is worse? Which is the worst one to have and to have to recover from?
2: In 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 in, a, in this, the injury that I would least like to have myself uh-huh. would be a wrist dislocation. So I think those are very um, traumatic injuries that can cause a lot of problems long term, early arthritis, and things like that. Thankfully, as we mentioned earlier, they're just not that common. Um, sprains are very common, but they really there's a there's a there's a real uh, spectrum of of sprain. Sometimes you get a sprain, your wrist hurts for a couple of days, it starts to settle down, and you're back without too much trouble. Some people can get sprains, and that will last and grumble and four weeks, six weeks. It's still sore. It's hard to get back to things, especially if you're doing a lot of manual labor. So for some, in some instances, some of these sprains can really linger on. Fractures in the acute phase. So in the first week or two, a fracture is usually the most painful. Okay. Because of the break of the bone and the bleeding, and then there's some sort of cast or even surgery in worst case scenario. But then the bones typically by a month are really starting to heal and the pain is settling down. And so you can usually get going a little bit. So in, in the worst-case scenario, like I said, a wrist dislocation is probably the worst, but sprains are variable in how they stick around.
0: Okay. Are there special concerns for um, children versus adults uh, with a fracture?
2: Yeah. I, children's fractures are really common, and thankfully, in most cases, most of them don't require surgery, and most of them heal up really quickly. There are some occasional ones where there there is surgery needed or they there can be severe, but... Um, like I said, kids are active and they're on the monkey bars, they're on the swing sets, and they're falling and landing, and, and they're really common. But like I said, in most cases, they do really well with a cast. And and, uh, and so in kids, there's considerations because the growth plate is around that area, and there can be uh, sometimes some problems, but again... If you're going to break a wrist, you want to do it when you're five years old.
0: Well, I was going to say on the other end of the age spectrum, maybe not bounce back as easily from a broken wrist, right?
2: Absolutely. The, The geriatric population is where we see a lot of fractures, what we call the fragility fractures, where typically ladies above 75 or sorry, above 65 into their 70s, they start to fall and less energy. is They they fall, like I said, just in their home, something that really they wouldn't have thought about, and suddenly their wrist is broken. And there's some real considerations because their bone is softer or osteoporotic, as we call it. It, it tends to collapse more. They often heal with a lot of deformity, and sometimes it can be a real problem for these elderly folks.
0: Does your um, treatment recommendation, does it vary at all if it's the person's dominant hand
2: or Um, I I would say yes and no. Um, Mostly what determines whether we think people fit into a surgical category is really just how badly deformed the bone is or how likely it is to heal in a deformed position. So most people would say that, yes, if if the wrist was deformed and it was your dominant wrist, it would probably be more problematic for you because it's the one you're using all the time. But having said that, if it's your non-dominant wrist and it really healed in a crooked fashion, then you're now your your helper hand is also disabled. So, yes, I think your dominant hand is important. But I think as we've gotten better at, at fixing these things, we have some great ways to fix them now. I think we it, it's less important because I think we know that the more deformity the bone heals with, or potential deformity, the worse the functional outcome is going to be. So,
0: so if you if you um, fracture your dominant hand and you're you're casted for however many weeks or months, um, and you have to make do with your other hand, once you're you're healed. Do you maintain uh, the skills that you've learned in your non-dominant hand, or do you go back <laughs> to your old ways?
2: No, most most people, old dogs, new tricks, yep, you're going to definitely just get back. If you're right-handed, when your cast is off, you'll do you'll everything right-handed okay. again. Yep.
0: All right. Having had a wrist fracture, does that set you up and make you kind of weak and more likely to have another one?
2: Uh, no. In most cases, no. What we tell people is once the bone heals back, and that's usually somewhere between about six to 10 weeks, this bone is as strong as it was before. So for the person that, you know, the younger adult that falls off a bicycle, they're not anymore at risk. So you they'll know, be good as new? They'll, they'll be essentially be as good as new. Um, the elderly people that, you know, are prone to these fragility fractures, they're just potentially prone prone to more fractures but the fracture itself once it heals the the skeleton really does remodel and heal up nicely and really makes it as good as new once it's healed
0: Okay, one last question, and thank you for all the information on wrist fractures. Um, but since I have you here and you're a, a hand specialist, I've heard of skier's thumb, baseball finger, and tennis elbow, and I'm not sure what any of them are, but it's interesting that they're all named after sports. Is that because the athletes in those sports are more likely to develop those? Is that where the names came from? Sure.
2: Uh, the so. the um, They're not always... High-end athletes, but they're often associated with those sports. So certainly, you know, the person that falls skiing with a ski pole in their hand—it's at risk of sort of breaking the ligaments and partly dislocating. And so, yes, a lot of those things are active people uh, trying to do active things, and energy was more than the body could take.
0: Okay, great. Well, my guest has been hand specialist Dr. Brian Harley from Upstate's Department of Orthopedics. I'm Amber Smith for the podcast and talk show produced by Upstate HealthLink on air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection.
6: Some of the most poignant pieces we receive describe a parent from the perspective of his or her adult child. In a conversation or in a gesture, suddenly something very powerful is revealed, and the emotion can overwhelm. I have two poems to share that illustrate such a moment. The first is from poet and playwright Kathleen Kramer. It is entitled Driving Mom. Next to me in the passenger seat, she looks straight ahead, but sees only the old roads hidden in the folds of her mind. She tries to follow the conversation, but gets lost when it turns a corner. A red pickup rockets past, spewing a plume of noxious smoke. Whoa, I say, he's going like a bat out of hell. Where is that? she asks. I glance her way, how to explain the location of hell. I thought she'd lived there for years, but if she has to ask, perhaps I'm wrong. The second poem is from Deidre Price, a professor of English at Northwest Florida State College. She looks at her father's hair and is carried back to a childhood memory. Hair, L'Amour's Vita E Ultra Hold hairspray Might as well have sponsored our childhood mornings, my father's aerosol fog mingling with the smell of close-up toothpaste as he opened the bathroom door at a clockwork seven, steam billowing from the bathroom, still warm from his dial soap and Pert Plus shower. A metal razor with clouds of Barbasol and a generic blue plastic comb ended the ritual, His fine black hair parted always on the left. With a swoop across the front, he'd smooth, lift, and spray, a professional vanity paired with a power tie, a smart suit. Years later, his hair would confess the cancer, his mouth would not, leaving gray wisps that stuck to his story business as usual. But what cancer does not steal, the cure will borrow.
0: This has been Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Please join us next week when we learn about coronary artery disease. If you missed any of today's show, listen on demand on our website at healthlinkonair.org, or find a podcast in iTunes by searching for one word: HealthLink. I'm Amber Smith. Thanks for listening.